to the book of Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on into perfection, not laying again the foundation. Doesn't say ripping the foundation up, just means starting there, build on that. Not laying again the foundation, and here's what's in the foundation, foundational doctrines of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, both spirit and water, and of laying on of the hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permit. We're going to build on this foundation and go unto perfection. So in that passage is a doctrine that often people do not think about, overlook. And I've taught on this just a few times here, but I really felt to talk about this again tonight. I want to speak on the laying on of hands. And God bless you. You can be seated. And now that you're seated, I wanted to just say a couple things to set up this idea. Um, I, I taught this, I've taught this in leadership settings numerous times in our church and to other leaders. But in 2015, on a Wednesday night Bible study, I taught on the doctrine of laying on of hands. And then in 2019, in a series on foundations, I taught on all of these doctrines. So on February 13th, 2019, I spoke on this again. And I'm pretty careful. I typically know when I taught on something and should I preach or teach this again. You would never only teach on the oneness of God once. You know, you would hopefully repeat it over and over uh, in some reasonable period of time. And so I was reluctant, you know, humanly to talk about this again, 2019 to 2023. But I started thinking about what COVID did to the church. Pre-COVID, altars were full and people lay hands on one another. During COVID, first, we couldn't come to church. Uh, we chose to, to follow that. And then we came socially distanced. I remember the Pentecost Sunday. I said, we're going to have an Acts 2 service today uh, when the Holy Ghost fell and nobody laid hands on anybody. They just all received the Holy Ghost. And we had a touchless Pentecost Sunday. That's weird if you were raised in a Pentecostal church, right? So COVID affected us, and I've been thinking and praying. We need to restore the power of our altars. We're seeing more people receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. We're seeing more people being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Uh, we've gone years without ever having a week when we did not have someone either baptized and or receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. I thank God for that. Pre-COVID, that was, it was the rule more than the exception. Uh, and then after COVID, you know, people like to ignore whatever COVID did. Uh, financially, our church was strong. Our attendance is still not totally back. We've gained like 100 per year average, but, but COVID affected the church. It affected the way we interact. It affected people, but it did not change the Bible. Amen. Amen. In 2018, I taught a couple of weeks on how things work in the kingdom of God. And um, so two Wednesday nights. And, and on that first message, I, I told a story that I heard Brother Paul Mooney tell. Uh, one of my heroes, one of the great leaders in the United Pentecostal Church. 
Brother Mooney said he was in a hospital and he was going through a door from one unit to the next and he was pushing against the door. And I've told this story before in that series on how things work in the kingdom of God. So I was pushing on the door for all I was worth and it was just not opening very easily. He said, a little nurse walked up to me and said, sir, you're working against the design of the door. And she pushed that little silver button there and the door opened of its own accord, just like the apostle Peter was in prison and the prison doors opened of their own accord. When he told that story, you know, of course, it's one of the great Brother Paul Mooney stories that you never forget. And in the kingdom of God, you can do things that work against the design of the door, against the design of the kingdom of God. There are people that ignore biblical principles and they don't receive the benefit and the blessing of those biblical principles. We obviously believe in giving and we realize that God blesses giving. And if you're stingy with God, you rob God. The Bible said it's like you have a, a bag with holes in it putting money in that bag and it's not there because it just runs out because God doesn't seal it up. And I'm not here to talk about money tonight. I'm not even in my notes. But I think it's important for us to understand the way things work in the kingdom of God, that we work with God and not against God so that we cooperate with his principles. You don't have to understand all about the wiring of the door or the mechanics of the door you just have to realize that if you push that button, it will open for you. You don't have to understand everything about the kingdom of God. There are some things that may seem hidden or mysterious, but if you'll work with God according to his principles, it will work for you. Amen. One of those principles is the way God works in prayer. I've taught numerous times about the, the birth, the death, the supernatural fulfillment of a vision or a dream. It's just the way God works. It's the design of the kingdom of God. Jesus said, except a corn of wheat, a kernel of wheat, fall on the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. That's a principle of the kingdom of God. It always works that way. And if you work with God, you have the benefit of God's blessing in your life. Now, Jude, who wrote toward the end of the apostolic era, said that we need to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. So we need to make sure that we contend or fight for biblical doctrines and truth that bring God's principles to life in our lives. Principles are powerful when they're practiced. If you just know it and don't act on it, it doesn't do you a lot of good. You have to know it first, but once you know that principle, then you need to act on it. So in those, those, those biblical foundational principles, their doctrines of the church, laying on of hands is there. And in the scope of other doctrines, it seems that in my life, raised in the church, that it wasn't really talked about a lot. We believed in it, we practiced in it, but I never heard anyone lay out the doctrine of laying on of hands. This doctrine deals with power and authority and impartation that comes from God. Amen. When I was 16 years old at a youth camp, the Lord started working with me. I didn't know I was going to be a preacher, did not acknowledge a call to preach. I was just at a youth camp and I was praying with a friend of mine, not as a, a preacher or a superior, 
I just went up behind this friend and I put my hand on his back and started praying. And when I did, uh, he was he was just praying, but I just broke. I felt something, so much compassion in me. And then he broke. And I did not know till later that he had experienced a very serious family tragedy. And I didn't know what God was doing in me, but, but I thought there's something going on here spiritually that I need to understand. I did not know much about it, but God used me to pray with people. When I was in Bible college, I started studying the laying on of hands. Uh, Brother Billy Cole uh, has passed away since that time. He was teaching at the Bible college. And I went to Brother Cole and I said, Brother Cole, I would like to talk to you about the laying on of hands. Can you help me understand this doctrine more? And he began to share some principles for me about the impartation of the power of God through the laying on of hands. And then I remember a situation, Brother T.L. Craft, you know, that I, I worked under for 10 years in Jackson, my pastoral mentor. He told a story about a young man in the church. He was in my youth group, uh, Jim, Jimbo Hood, Jim Hood. And when he was a little boy, he was covered in warts. If you've heard me tell this story teaching this, you will remember the story. He had warts everywhere. And Brother Craft said, I, I went to pray for Jimbo and I knelt down, closed my eyes, and I imagined myself being a little boy covered in warts and prayed. When Brother Craft prayed for him, overnight, Jimbo was healed of those warts. It was a miracle of healing that God did in his life. So I, I'm still this early stages of my ministry trying to understand the doctrine, not the gift, but the doctrine of the laying on of hands. And the Lord began to use me more praying with fellow students and people and throughout my ministry. I don't claim to have a corner on the market of laying on of hands. I'm not trying to hang out my shingle as the expert on laying on of hands. I just was hungry to understand this. I felt like there was some power here that I saw operate, but I wanted to understand how it worked. You know, the Bible said in Galatians 5 and 6, for in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, but faith which worketh by love. Faith works by love. If you have love, love is the greatest, right? Faith, hope, love. Love is the greatest. 1 Corinthians 13. So if you operate in love, then faith works by love. A compassion and love for people. That's just how God works. So I felt like there's a component of praying with people that there needs to be a compassion and a true love for people that moves you to faith, from compassion or love to faith. I've got numerous scriptures in my notes of Matthew 14. I won't give you all the references for the sake of time, but Jesus was moved with compassion, healed their sick. He departed from Jericho. There were two blind men sitting there. He was moved with compassion and he saved us when they said, or healed them. He healed them when they said, have mercy on us. So here is compassion or love triggering faith or the miraculous. God works like this. Mark 1, a leper, he was moved with compassion. And other references in the Bible about how faith works by love. So uh, there is power in prayer, right? We believe in that. And fervent prayer, the effectual 
fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. And, uh, and I heard Brother Blake years ago at a school of missions teaching on prayer. And he said, God invented prayer. And he created it for us to communicate with him. Prayer is not our idea. It was God's idea. So we believe that when we pray, we're working with God. He doesn't need us, just like he doesn't need our money. But he chose us to be a labor together with us. Or we are labors together with God. So God is at work, and we're working with him. Amen? So when we pray, God responds to prayer. It is a prayer of faith. This is much later in my notes. It is a prayer of faith that saves the sick, and the Lord will raise them up. We pray for daily needs, spiritual direction, spiritual breakthrough. We pray in the Spirit. Ephesians 6.18 says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Paul said, I pray with the understanding and I pray with the Spirit. We should pray both ways. So we should yield to God to pray in the Spirit. Amen. The Bible said in Romans 8, 26, that the Spirit makes intercession for us. We don't even know what we're praying for. And I believe Romans 8, 26 is mainly talking about how the Spirit intercedes for us on our behalf when we don't know how to pray, more than it refers to us interceding for someone else. But the Spirit prays through us. So beyond prayer in general... And prayer with fasting and prayer with obedience. You have not because you ask not. And you have not because you ask faultily or amiss, right? So we want to pray. And we want to pray according to the will of God. And we want to pray in alignment with what he wants to do. The will of God. That's a little bit repetitive. But there's also a ministry of prayer. Throughout the Bible, um, God looked for an intercessor. He looked for someone to go pray or go to him on behalf of someone else. Abraham interceded for Lot, talking to God about the city of Sodom, which he spared for 50 righteous, all the way to 10 righteous. He interceded. So to intercede for someone is to go to God on behalf of another person. It's a fascinating read about this in some Bible dictionaries about intercession. You can check my theology there. But when you pray... An intercessory prayer, it doesn't have to be in the spirit. It doesn't have to be in tongues. But you're going to God for someone else. And this is all part of this idea of laying on of hands. So this is all interrelated. But I wanted to lay out this idea. We pray. Sometimes we do not even understand what we pray. I told you this story when I was 16. I had no idea what that friend was going through. When I learned it later, it kind of shook me up how serious it was. But the Lord knew his need, and in my naivety and just praying, it kind of happened to me. It wasn't something I earned or deserved or was operating in some great knowledge. I certainly did not have that. But I believe the need of my friend was so great that God used me to help him receive strength that he needed to deal with a crisis in his family. Now, when you pray, when you pray, when I pray, I think there's always two things that, that are kind of transactional that need to happen. The first thing is I need to empty myself of what is in me that is not like God or that needs to change. If I'm coming to God as a sinner, 
you'll notice that the first doctrine in Hebrews 6 is repentance from dead works. It comes before faith toward God. So the first thing that happens is you change your mind. That's what repentance is, a change of mind about sin and God and your life direction. You're turning your life over to God. When you pray, you need to change your mind about your circumstances. And you need to empty yourself of any preconceived ideas of, of yourself. If it's salvation, you're repenting. As a saint of God, you're turning this problem over to God. It's getting out of your hands. You're casting all your care upon him. It's an emptying of ourselves. It is like a glass of water that is full. And you like to put something else in it. Maybe more water, fresh water. But until you empty it, there's no room for anything else. And I believe repentance is an illustration only. An application is emptying yourself so God can fill you. You know, the man that was, had the devil cast out of him, his life was swept and empty, but it was not filled with the Spirit. And he went out and seven more worse than that devil came into him. So you've got to empty yourself, but then be filled of God. That's the second part of prayer. We don't want people to come and repent of their sins and walk out the door having emptied themselves in repentance, but not being filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now we know sometimes repentance is a process for that person to, to pray and to get things right with God and maybe go make things right with people. I, don't, I think you can settle it with God and then go work out the details with people later, all right? So repentance can be, can, can be instantaneous. So we empty ourselves and then, then we allow God to fill us up. Uh, several years ago, Brother Josh Herring was preaching here and it prompted a scripture to my mind, Acts 19, 11. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. So that from his body were brought into the sick handkerchiefs or aprons and the diseases departed from them. That's the phrase I want you to see. They departed from them. Something went out of them. Amen. And the evil spirits went out from them. There were things in them, sicknesses and spirits. And in prayer, Aprons prayer from the hands of Paul. The power of God did this, not Paul, not that symbol of faith, that token of faith. We do believe that God honors our faith and even tokens of prayer like that. But it went out from them. That's the end goal of this doctrine, of this message tonight. It's not till we'd walk out with a new education about something we've heard a couple times here, but so that there would be spiritual transactions happen in this altar. That sin would go out of people. Spirits would go out of people. Diseases would go out of people. That God would heal and deliver and save and restore and recover. That the power of God would be demonstrated among us. So you've got to empty. And there has to be a filling. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Now baptism is kind of described two ways. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. It means the same thing. But in this case, I want to describe this Christ in you. So we empty ourselves. And when the Holy Ghost fills us, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, the Bible says, right? So there needs to be this supernatural filling in our lives. Now, if I stop right here, there's something that we all need to take away. When you're sick, 
when you've sinned, when you need something from God, you need to get it out of you and you need to get God in you. You need God's solution, God's answer to your problem, amen? So that stands alone as what I believe happens transactionally when we pray, we've got to empty ourselves and then we let God replace what has been emptied with his solution, his source, his power, his answer to our prayer, the human emptying and the divine filling. And this is where I believe that the laying on of hands is just a tool, a spiritual tool that God uses. You do not have to have someone to lay hands on you for what I just described to happen, to empty yourself and to be filled with the power of God. But we know scripturally, Old and New Testament, that God used the laying on of hands. And in the New Testament, there were people who received the gift of the Holy Ghost when hands were laid on them. In Acts chapter 8, in the Samaritan revival, when, when uh, Philip went there, they were all baptized. There was great joy. But until Peter and John came down to Samaria, no one received the gift of the Holy Ghost. They laid hands on them, and then the door to the Samaritans was open to the gospel. Maybe there's something else going on there, but that's my best understanding. But they didn't receive the Holy Ghost until Peter and John came down, laid hands on them, and then they received the Holy Ghost. So I just want to use this word transactional that God used the laying on of hands to impart the power of the Holy Ghost. All right. Go back to Hebrews 6. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on into perfection, build the whole house, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God or of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands. I'll stop right there because I just wanted to repeat what I read and what I've said that the laying on of hands, you know, I guess I grew up thinking it was a gift. And I believe God can use it as a spiritual gift or in, in, uh, accompanied by a spiritual gift, okay? But, but it is a doctrine. That means that you don't have to be, have a spiritual gift to operate in the laying on of hands. In fact, Mark 16, much later in my notes, I think much later, that's scary. So about believers, they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. It doesn't say apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teacher, teachers. These signs shall follow them that believe. Please say, that's me. Spirit-filled believer, that's you. So God uses the laying on of hands. Now, some people get uncomfortable when you talk about this because they've seen it misused or abused I remember many years ago as a teenager, my sister was suffering from a migraine. We're at a conference. They had a healing line. And after she'd been prayed for by numerous people, well-meaning people, she had a much worse migraine than when she started in the prayer line. And as a teenager, I kind of had a bad attitude about that. I'm pretty protective, you know, of people I love. And um, it, was not, it was not anything bad but there was just a lot of enthusiasm, right? And it was great, except for my sister. So sometimes you get, you, people can have just a bad uh, view of the laying on of hands. 
And, and around here, we try to do things decently and in order. But, you know, powerful altars are messy. Church, Brother JTP taught me, church is just messy. That's how you survive being a pastor 27 years. Church is messy. And if you think it's not going to be messy, then you're going to be super disillusioned. And if you're a preacher and you think it's not going to be messy, then you'll probably go be a pediatrician or a plumber or something else because, you know, it's just messy. And, and altars are messy. And when people are praying, sometimes they're, they're desperate with God. And it's not pretty. It's like an emergency room. It's not usually pretty there. Because there's something happening that's in the deepest part of a person's life. So we need to just kind of roll with that and expect that and try to take care of things that get out of order. But don't expect it to be pretty all the time. Amen. So, I've already said this, but laying on of hands is not limited to a spiritual gift. But when it's uh, practiced properly, sometimes spiritual gifts are imparted. There's been a few times when I felt like, and when I prayed for somebody, that there was a spiritual gift that happened that went out from me. Not from me, but, you know, God used me, and God gave a spiritual gift. And, and, uh, and, and that happened with Paul praying with Timothy. He laid his hands on him. And a spiritual gift was imparted. Paul wanted to go to Corinth, I believe, and impart a spiritual gift. So this foundational doctrine means that we need to understand it. We need to practice it. Amen? Amen. And in the Bible, it's used in many, many different ways. So now I want to give you the foundational doctrine. And I, uh, I felt like I probably need a couple of weeks on this. And I'll take a couple of weeks on this doctrine. And, and I'm going to be practical about altar work here, all right, at Atlanta West. So today I'm trying to lay down the foundation, the doctrine, and then we'll get into some practice. And um, my goal is not to make you feel nervous about praying with people. Uh, Brother Jerry Jones said one time, been the churches, they're like mousy churches. Everybody's afraid they're going to do something wrong so they don't do anything. That is not what we want at Atlanta West. And we typically are not going to, call you out and shout you down and humiliate you. We're going to try to handle things discreetly. So I want to go back to Leviticus 16. You can turn in your Bibles there, cheat and watch the screen, which is a lot easier. It's not cheating. I'm just being funny. Poor attempt at humor. This is where in the Bible, there's a law first mentioned where something is taught. And this is where I believe you know, when I began to study this, the Lord directed me, and there weren't a lot of resources, to be honest. But Leviticus 16, 20. This is the day of atonement. And when he hath made an end of reconciling, reconciling the holy place, the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send them away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited, and he shall uh, let go the goat in the wilderness. So that's a fascinating picture. So this is a day of atonement the 10th day of the 7th month, 
Aaron is to make an atonement for himself and then a reconciliation for the people. He brings the bullock as a sin offering for himself and then two goats and one ram are involved. And then there are these two goats and lots are cast and one goat is designated as the Lord's. We're going to see these verses on the screen. Leviticus 16 and 7. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. So this first goat is going to be killed, sacrificed unto the Lord. The second is the scapegoat, verse 10. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement with him and to be let go into a forest scapegoat into the wilderness. So he's presented live to the Lord. So verse 21 that I read a few minutes ago, just a couple minutes ago, is this place. Verse 20, reconciling the holy place. Go on to verse 21. Thank you, media. And Aaron shall lay both his hands. Everybody say he's going to lay his hands on the goat. And he's going to confess over this live goat all the sins, the iniquities of the children of Israel. And then the Bible said he's going to put them on the head of the goat. Now, how is that? This is spiritual. It is certainly like not a list that he's sticking on the horns of the goat. You know, that's not that. And then this goat bears the iniquities of the people. He's led by the hand of a fit man. I know that's probably you, not me. Out in the wilderness, law far away where he can never come back again. And he's let go in the wilderness. Now, this principle of laying on of hands is depicted in the scripture. Uh, Leviticus 16, 21. I'm going to just highlight the first part of this verse. You'll see it on the screen. Leviticus 16, 21. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat. So, he's going to lay his hands on him. And then in verse 21, he's going to confess over him the iniquities of the children of Israel. So, there's a first thing that happens here where that goat symbolically becomes Israel. So, the operative word to me here is identification. That that goat becomes Israel. It, it is now going to eventually... The sins are going to be transferred to this goat, imparted to him. He's going to carry them away. But there's identification and there is impartation or transfer. That's the word that I first came up with years ago. Impartation is a little better word that I found uh, studying this doctrine. But then, if you'll just look again at verse 21, farther down in this phrase, he's going to put those sins on the head of the goat. And send them away. Amen. Led by a fit man in the wilderness. Now this ceremony. This spiritual ceremony. Looked ahead to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus was both. The sacrificial goat. And he was also the scapegoat goat. He shed his blood. For our sins. And then the Bible said. He carried them away. He took them away from us where they can never find us again. Amen. 2 Corinthians 5.21 said, He who knew no sin became sin for us. 
God made him to become sin. And these two principles are so powerful to me. Um, they're, they're on the screens again. Identification, laying hands upon the head of the live goat, confessing the iniquities over him. Now, now this is just an animal. But he's a substitute. He's standing in for Israel. This is a principle that God instituted. God ordained this. So this goat symbolically becomes Israel. This is identification. And when I've kind of studied through this, I look back at that story I told you when I was 16 that when I laid my hands on my friend's back, I was standing behind him, and I just felt some compassion. I felt like God was letting me identify with what was going on in him in the same way that this goat is, becomes like Israel. It's symbolic of, of carrying his sins. And then when Aaron transferred those sins to the goat, I feel like this impartation is when something transfers from that person who's laying on his hands to the person who is being prayed for, okay? So if you'll just say identification, identification, and impartation. Impartation, that was really weak. Impartation, if you'll help me out. The more you get with me, the quicker I go. Just giving you a little hope. <laughs> Identification, impartation. Now, I believe that this is the spiritual principle that God uses, and he's used them over and over throughout the Bible. So I'm going to just run through super fast some examples. Uh, Isaac to Jacob, Jacob to Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh laid hands on them. When there was a sacrifice in Exodus chapter 29, Leviticus 1, Leviticus 2, they laid hands on the sacrifice. This day of atonement, Leviticus 16, laying on of hands. Ordaining into leadership or authority or ministry. This is a big deal in the New Testament and the Old. They laid hands on people. Moses laid hands on Joshua. The children of Israel laid their hands on the Levites who ordained them into, into ministry. And Leviticus, I'm not going to go over this verse for my media team, but Numbers 27, when God told Moses to lay your hands on Joshua and give him a charge. But then later the Bible said that the power of God rested on, on uh, yes, it did, on uh, this leader, Joshua, for Moses had laid his hands on him. When Moses laid his hands on Joshua, I'm getting ahead of myself, Deuteronomy 34, 9. Don't just put that verse up there. Thank you. So the same anointing that was on Moses was on Joshua. And the reason it gives is because Moses laid his hands on him, and when he did, that anointing and authority that was in Moses was transferred to Joshua, God's chosen leader for the next generation. People laid hands when there was a capital offense. In the New Testament, hands were laid on people ordaining them into ministry like 1 Timothy 4.14. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, Paul tells Timothy, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. When we ordain people into the ministry, we lay hands on them. We believe that there is power there. 
In 2 Timothy 1 and 6, Paul said, I want you to remember, I want you to stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. Something happened when Paul laid his hands on Timothy. Paul is just a man. Timothy is just a man. God created this, this transaction, this identification, this impartation, and he uses it. Amen. I'll never forget being a little boy more than once. One time a stomach ache, one time an earache. When my father, my layman carpenter dad, put his big, thick hand on my head and prayed over me, not a preacher, but a believer. And I remember God instantly healing me when my dad prayed over me. I believe in the power of a believer that is anointed by the Holy Ghost. This should not be obscure to us. It should be everyday apostolic life. Amen. In our homes, every head of home, you have authority in your home. You have the power of the Holy Ghost that believers will lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Amen. Paul and Barnabas going on a missionary journey. Hands are laid on them. This is how it happens for healing Mark 16, 18, they shall take up serpents, not on purpose. They have an example. And if they drink any deadly thing accidentally, it will not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. I mentioned these special miracles by the hands of Paul. Jesus took children up in his arms and blessed them. In Acts chapter 8, verse 17, you can skip to that verse. This is when Peter and John come down to Samaria. Then laid they their hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost. Acts 9, 17. Ananias went his way, went into the house where Saul of Tarsus was. Ananias is a certain disciple. He prays for him and God heals Paul of blindness. It doesn't specifically say, but he said, God sent me here that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. I believe it was at that time that the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, received the gift of the Holy Ghost. Acts 19, 6. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. You do not have to have someone lay hands on you to receive the Holy Ghost. But God uses this, so we should operate with God. Amen? So I believe when you pray with someone, I'm not really a fan of trying to see how many people you can lay hands on in a single service. Sometimes I'm a guest preacher somewhere, and I may pray. I'm a pastor. We have pastoral team members here, elders in our church. We may pray with numerous people. But the way I've seen this operate so much is when you take time with a person, and you pray with them, and you lead them to repentance, and you help them empty themselves, you're not imparting anything to them. If you try to impart something to a person that is still full of sin, who has not yet emptied themselves to God, probably nothing's going to happen. But if you will help them repent 
and encourage them that God loves them and will forgive them if they'll ask for forgiveness. If a person's struggling, burdened down, it might be depression, it might be grief, but if they will cast their burdens on the Lord, amen, cast their care on the Lord, if they will empty themselves, if you'll help them do that, pray with them, be compassionate, let God use you to help them empty themselves out. And when you sense that they have emptied themselves and you'll kind of sense in the spirit that a change is now coming in, they're, they're now ready to see God do something in their life. And at that point, I begin to say words of faith and encourage them. Sometimes to a person who's wanting to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, I will say, will you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost right now? And almost always, if it's a saint in the church, I don't always ask permission to lay my hands on that person. But a guest, a person seeking the Holy Ghost, I typically am going to ask them, may I lay my hand on your head? And that's their body space. We're in a post-COVID world. I want to make sure that they've given God permission to give them the Holy Ghost by repenting and ready to receive and that they're ready for me to be a part of that process and lay my hands on them. And if they say yes, then I will say receive the Holy Ghost. And I believe in that moment that God is going to give them the Holy Ghost. I expect it to happen, amen? That God is going to impart the gift of God, the Holy Ghost, in that person's life. Amen. Amen. Now, I know there's a scripture, 1 Timothy 5.22. Media, you get a gold star tonight for keeping up with me. Lay hands suddenly on no man. Neither be partakers of other man's sins. In the context, this verse is not talking about, you know, going real slow when you lay hands on somebody. This has to do with ordaining a person into a position of authority. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, the things you've heard and seen of me, commit to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. There's this process. Make sure that that person is faithful. You don't put a novice into a position of authority, the Bible says. This is the context of this. Timothy, be careful. If you're going to put a person in a position of spiritual authority, don't do it suddenly. Make sure that that person meets qualifications. He gives qualifications of bishops and deacons to Timothy. Don't do this suddenly. But in this practical way, I think that we need to be thoughtful and prayerful. I've walked you through this process of emptying and filling of identification and transfer. If this operates the way I believe the principle is, then you've got to take a little time with that person. Now, sometimes a person is repented in the seat. They repented at home. They come down, they're ready to receive the Holy Ghost in that moment. So you've got to read where they are. Don't make them go back and repent all over again. If they've got stammering lips and they're ready to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, they have faith, start right there. We always say, start where people are, right? Start where that person is. If they're not ready to receive the Holy Ghost, you're going to waste your time. You're going to frustrate and confuse them by praying with them to receive the Holy Ghost when they're not ready. They're praying for their son that's in jail. They're praying for their marriage. They're praying for something else. You've got to start where they are. Amen. So we want to not lay hands on somebody suddenly. I'm applying that principle Told you what I believe the principle is, so that we're, we're sensitive, we're thoughtful, prayerful, amen?
I believe that before we go pray with someone else, we need to make sure we've emptied ourselves of any known sin. And we don't have a bad attitude. We don't have an unforgiving spirit. That we've let God fill us with the Holy Ghost, renew us in the Holy Ghost. One baptism, many fillings, by the way. Initial baptism of the Holy Ghost and filled many, many times over, hopefully. Paul said, I thank my God I speak in tongues more than you all. So you speak in an unknown tongue, you edify yourself, which is a good thing. And Jude said, you keep yourself in the love of God by praying in the Holy Ghost. So there's a lot of verses about that. When you pray with someone, you're standing in a very sacred spot. You're standing there representing God to help that person receive something that only God can give them. I cannot give them anything. Spiritually, only God can, right? But God uses people. And when we understand how the door works, instead of trying to bust through the door, trying to make someone receive the Holy Ghost till they're ready, like that, right? If we understand how this works, then we can work with that person and see God do incredible things through the power of the Holy Ghost. If you're able, please stand. And if you don't mind, please begin to make your way to the altar if you're able to come. And I always say this commercial, if it's, you have a really early morning and need to go, I always understand that. We don't think you're being disrespectful if you have to leave on a Wednesday night. Praise God. I mentioned my friend when I was 16. He's still my friend all these years later. I didn't go take authority and lay my hands on his head because when you lay up your head, your hands on someone's head, that's a, that's a, a position of authority, right? Not, you're not taking authority, but it's God's authority through you. So if that person's not receptive to that, you're going to get resistance. So we want to have this lesson about reading and reaching people. We want to read where they are so we can reach them with the power of God. So sometimes I'm not going to lay my hands on their head. They're not ready to receive for something to be imparted to them. So I'm trying to identify. I'm trying to match where they are. I can help them get to a place of receptivity to the power of God. Amen. And then when I feel like they've emptied themselves, there's been that identification and that emptying. And I, again, I, I'm repeating myself. I begin to try to encourage and speak words of faith. And when I see that they're ready, they're hungry for God and they're ready, then I'm going to with permission, I usually would do that sooner or earlier. I'm going to pray with them in Jesus' name. I'm going to believe that God will work through me, will flow through me with power and authority and the Holy Ghost to minister to them in a way. Now you want to ask, why does this work? Why does God do this? I have no idea. I have no, well, I do have some ideas why God chose speaking in other tongues as a sign of the Holy Ghost. I don't have to understand the engineering and everything that's in God's divine mind to read his word and know how things work. 
okay? I just know this works, and I know the principles behind it, but to, to say I understand, and I've got in my notes, you know, the hands have 100,000 receptors and all this stuff. This is not about a human hug or a human touch. This is about a spiritual principle and the power of God.